we ask a few of the writers from the magazine to read their pieces aloud. This week, Harriet Sargent writes about why ethnicity matters in sexual abuse cases. Lionel Shriver takes aim at the failing students in American universities. Martin van der Weer writes about where housing prices will go next. And Philip Patrick on why Japanese food is overrated. First up, Harriet Sargent. A 24th man has just been charged with the rape of a 13-year-old girl more than 10 years ago in Bradford. 24 men. One 13-year-old girl. It takes some absorbing. The case will come to trial in due course, but it prompts reflection on other cases of historic sexual abuse against girls where the victims have been white, working class, usually in care and very young. One girl admitted her first memory was of sexual abuse aged five. The perpetrators have often been men from the British Pakistani community living under a Labour-run council. It all happened a decade or more ago. Nothing to see here, we are told. Just some unsavoury, historic sex crime. Let's all move along. Harvey Weinstein's abuse of women also went back years. That did not stop the Me Too movement taking to the streets and outrage. Where is the outrage here? No one marches for these girls, despite them numbering in their thousands, despite them being doused in petrol, threatened with knives and guns, injected with drugs, gang-raped at a tender age, and even murdered. The fate suffered by 16-year-old Lucy Howe. Outrage nowadays is so picky. Victim and perpetrator are the wrong class and race. Nothing white or privileged about Lucy's 26-year-old taxi driver boyfriend, Azhar Ali Mehmud, later jailed for burning to death Lucy, who was then pregnant with his wife, her sister and her mother. No one is arguing that Pakistani men have a monopoly on child sex exploitation. The Catholic Church and Jimmy Savile spring to mind, not to mention all the hideous online abusers. But is the grooming epidemic as safely in the past as the authorities would have us believe? And how can we tell if we shy away from the reasons behind it? The role of the authorities then and now is almost as alarming as the grooming gangs themselves. Councils and police, paralysed by political correctness and identity politics, failed spectacularly to protect the young children in their care, and all for fear of damaging community relations. I would say community relations have been damaged almost as much by the cover-up as by the original abuse, and continue to be so. Sarah Champion, MP for Rotherham, recalled that social workers trying to report a crime were sent on race relations courses and threatened with disciplinary action if they didn't remove the fact they were identifying the person as a Pakistani male. Tom Crowther QC, who chaired the Telford inquiry, blames this nervousness about race. It must be catching because his own report into grooming gangs displays a similar timidity. 
perpetrators are men of Southern Asian heritage. Eight countries make up South Asia. How many Sri Lankans, Bhutanese or Indians live in Rotherham, Oldham or Huddersfield, let alone prey on 14-year-old girls? Gang rape, said one victim, was a normal part of growing up in Rotherham. And that is not the fault of the Bhutanese. So does euphemism and timidity indicate that all this is not quite as historic as the authorities would have us believe? The clue is in data collection. As recently as December 2019, the police force at the centre of the Rotherham grooming scandals was still not routinely recording the ethnicity of child sexual abuse suspects, according to the Times. In a town where hundreds of young girls were abused by men from one ethnic group, the police omitted suspect ethnicity in 67% of the cases. This lack of data is crucial, and the more cynical might claim that it must be deliberate. That helps explain the surreal conclusions of a recent Home Office report. Ignoring the group trials involving scores of men of Pakistani heritage, it claimed there is no credible evidence that any ethnic group is overrepresented in cases of child sexual exploitation. Indeed, the report says, research has found that group-based offenders are most commonly white. An opinion piece in The Guardian exclaims with obvious relief, a powerful modern racial myth has been exploded. The crimes committed in Rochdale, Oxford and Telford were real, but racist stereotyping and demonisation deflected from that. In the report's introduction, Priti Patel, the then Home Secretary, advocated better data collection including in relation to ethnicity. This, sniffed the Guardian authors, looks like a last-ditch attempt to keep a politically useful trope alive. However, findings from a report by the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse published this year tell a different story. Children are still being sexually exploited by grooming gangs in all parts of England and Wales, in the most degrading and destructive ways. Any idea that abuse has fallen since the high-profile case is in Rotherham and Rochdale was flawed. It reported extensive failures by councils and police and also highlighted that all-important lack of data on the ethnicity. It is clear whether a misplaced sense of political correctness or the sheer complexity of the problem have inhibited good quality data collection. But at least it means the authors of the Guardian piece can sit back and blame the whole sorry story on those acceptable and reassuring baddies, patriarchy, power and exploitation. Sadly, while that happens, it means that little will be done to help the next generation of vulnerable young girls. That was Harriet Sargent. Next, Lionel Shriver. 
If I seem to be bashing universities lately, they've asked for it. The prestigious New York University in Lower Manhattan didn't cover itself in glory when, just before this semester began, it responded to a petition from 82 students out of a class of 350 by sacking the professor. The petitioner's main objection? The course was too hard. After retiring from Princeton's chemistry department, where he taught organic chemistry for more than 40 years, Maitland Jones, Jr. taught the same course at NYU on one-year contracts as an adjunct. I used to be an adjunct, and this much hasn't changed since my day. Adjuncts are atrociously paid. I'm just guessing, but Dr. Jones would surely have been handsomely remunerated at Princeton. His pension must be plump. He could only have continued to teach organic chemistry at NYU for chump change out of passion for his subject and perhaps a devotion to community service. Among many publications, Jones is the author of a classic, widely used, 1,300-page organic chemistry textbook. NYU was getting a bargain. Firing a distinguished academic who's taking on classes of 350 as de facto charity work was worse than thankless. There's more at stake in this sorry tale than a rude conclusion to one man's impressive career. Organic chemistry is mostly taken by pre-med students. The demanding course is commonly regarded as a weed-out class. Students who can't cut the mustard fail or drop out. The subject's complex problem-solving and lab work develop many of the skills that physicians require. Or so I'm given to understand. I wouldn't survive 15 minutes of organic chemistry. In other words, organic chemistry is supposed to be hard. Yet as of about 10 years ago, Dr. Jones revealed in an interview, he noticed that students had lost focus. Students were misreading exam questions at an astonishing rate, he wrote to NYU in a letter objecting to his dismissal. He made his exams easier, and still their grades continued to drop. COVID restrictions inflicted the coup de grace. In the past two years, their grades, quote, fell off a cliff. We now see single-digit scores, even zeros. Not only did students not study, Dr. Jones observed, they didn't even seem to know how to study. When our Gen Z students can't do the work, what do we do? Dumb the classes down? If course requirements are relaxed too radically so that more students do well, professors will fail to convey the body of knowledge the classes are designed to deliver. Everyone gets an A, but still knows diddly-squat about organic chemistry. Education becomes theater. But then education at elite American colleges is already in danger of becoming theater an empty going through the motions, at the end of which graduates know little more than they did to begin with. For one ingredient in this story is money. 
Attending NYU, if you're paying full freight, costs $83,250 per year, a whopping 75,000 pounds in today's sadly depreciated sterling. Parents want their stonking money's worth, and the universities want their stonking money. The student-as-customer model encourages administrations to placate petulant undergraduates. After all, the customer is always right. And no parent wants to submit to such severe sticker shock only to have their darling Dr. Jabi weeded out. In the end, a degree is not something you earn, but something you buy. I've grown pretty cynical about higher education. Many majors NYU offers, most notoriously film majors, won't result in careers that ever earn back the 300,000 pound cost of the diploma. Plenty of graduates in a range of soft subjects haven't been prepared to make a social contribution of any consequence. But all degrees are not a joke. Some occupations still require you to know what you're doing, and medicine is one of them. None of us wants to be operated on by a surgeon who failed organic chemistry, or who took baby chemistry because big boy chemistry was too demanding. Parents and students may not care for the weed-out system, but ushering less capable young people onto non-pre-med career paths protects patients of the near future. At 65, I'm looking out for my own interest here. Reading up on Dr. Jones, I sampled the 6,000-plus comments after the New York Times article that reported the story. Wouldn't readers of America's most woked-out newspaper sympathize with struggling snowflakes whose meanie professor gave them crummy grades? To the contrary. The New York Times readership is the educated professional class. They have high standards. An overwhelming majority of those commenting were appalled that NYU had capitulated to student complaints about the curriculum being intolerably difficult. Many readers had taken organic chemistry. Some had failed organic chemistry and claimed that they deserved to fail because they realized they didn't have the chops for pre-med. Others were teachers or professors who, like Dr. Jones, decried their recent students as abysmal. Their classes were full of young people who couldn't write, couldn't read, and couldn't absorb information. Some of these teachers had quit. The larger issue extends beyond medicine and isn't specific to America. Tertiary education is now infected with solicitousness. Professors are meant to please students, while it used to be the other way around. Aggressive affirmative action drastically lowers admission standards for minority students, often resulting in an embarrassing bottom-of-the-class status for many of its supposed beneficiaries, the easiest solution to which is to reduce academic rigor for everybody. Grade inflation is rife, and cases like Dr. Jones's will encourage other untenured professors to simplify their lessons and give unwarranted high marks.
further bruised by catastrophic COVID lockdowns. Both British and American Gen Z kids seem curiously fragile. The cumulative result is bound to be a less qualified, less skillful, and less resilient workforce. Today's university students are the people who, in short order, will diagnose our cancers, repair our bridges, design our software, service our nuclear power stations, and conceive technological solutions to challenges we can't yet anticipate. Woe is the day that they throw down their tools because keeping fuel rods in the reactor cool is too hard. That was Lionel Schreiber. Next, Martin van der Wehr. Where next for house prices? Clearly, they're going down as mortgage rates go up. And my forecast in May that they would shed recent froth and then stagnate rather than plunge has been entirely overtaken by events, or at least by Quasi Kwarteng's calamitous fiscal event last month. Reverberations from the Chancellor's debut continue apace, with more emergency bond buying by the Bank of England, despite news that the OBR-assessed forecast missing from his September speech will now be unveiled on 31st of October instead of on 23rd of November. But even if the books can be cooked in a way that makes more sense than markets expect, hundreds of mortgage deals have been withdrawn and the average two- or five-year fixed offers have already moved above 6%. The talk is of house price falls of 10 to 15% over the next year, which, given inflation, equates to real terms falls of 20 to 25%, akin to post-2008. But even combined with a raised stamp duty threshold, lower prices may not improve affordability, while monthly mortgage costs are sharply higher. So the dreams of many first-time buyers will, for the time being, be broken, and the collapse of selling chains will crush transaction numbers this winter, with knock-on effects in estate agency, retail sales and mobility of labour. All Quasi's fault? Of course not, in the sense that house prices which had risen by two-thirds in a decade were bound to lose steam as soon as interest rates, homeowners' costs and recession risks started to rise. Indeed, a flatter price graph after a long surge would have been no bad thing if it allowed affordability to catch up. But has Kuateng personally fuelled the, quote, material risk to UK financial stability, unquote, to which the bank has been forced repeatedly to respond and of which housing market disruption is a symptom? Yes, he has. And can the damage be repaired on the 31st of October? Almost certainly not. To Katie Balls's provocative question last week, Rishi by Christmas, I can only say, I wish. Lessons from Minneapolis. My thoughts were di- diverted from domestic business this week because I've been in the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul discussing equity. Not shares rather than bonds, 
but social equity as opposed to inequity and built-in disadvantage. The focal point was a visit to George Floyd Square, where the road outside the Cup Foods grocery store, on which 46-year-old George Perry Floyd Jr. met his death under the knee of police officer Derek Chauvin, is now a lurid shrine. For months after that horrific event on the 25th of May 2020, the neighbourhood was a no-go area. Now it's a tourist destination, but a very uncomfortable one. The boundaries marked by giant clenched fist sculptures. We heard a lot about healing, but grief, anger and suspicion were still palpable. This is not the place for an essay on how America's most disadvantaged communities were created by racial covenants in property deeds, for example, which forced black people into segregated areas, and by denial of access to credit for mortgages and business loans, which still happens today. But let me ask briefly, are there lessons here for levelling up in the UK or for improving the prospects of our left-behind towns? We're fortunate, perhaps, to have neither the extreme divergence of life chances that afflict many US cities, nor their levels of armed violence. What we nevertheless have in common, I conclude, is that solutions to urban problems must always be holistic, granular and drawn from local data to do with bus routes, broadband and banking, as well as schools, clinics, policing and civic engagement. That political sloganising does more harm than good and that communities have to be both open to outside help and willing to help themselves. A very expensive Negroni. Following my recent observations on the weakness of the pound, you may wonder how the Negroni index stands in the state of Minnesota. That's the measure of purchasing power parity invented by my predecessor Christopher Files to illuminate exchange rates more vividly than drier sources such as OECD statistics can do. The latter are useful too, however, in indicating that the pound would need to stand above $1.40, last seen in May 2021, to put British visitors at ease. In the truss quateng trough of around or below $1.10, the only Negroni I consumed at $24 or £22 felt wrong on every level. And since I wasn't driving, it was no consolation that the same sum would have bought me more than six gallons of gasoline at the equivalent of 92 pence per litre. But I can't complain about a long, copious lunch at the Louis Ristorante in St Paul. At $70 per head, that was value for anyone's money. Heathrow's Infernal Maze And how was Heathrow? My faultless overnight flight home landed early, but the air bridge was broken, so we waited half an hour for mobile steps, slippery with rain. The immigration queue was huge. We've got 5,000, I heard one marshal mutter to another, neither recognisable as Heathrow boss John Holland Kay 
despite assurances from his PR people that he's often out front as part of a programme bravely titled Here to Help. The all-other passports line looked like a couple of hours long, while the biometric gates on the faster-moving side were failing to read one passport in four. And despite the energy crisis, the hall was far too hot, causing me to hallucinate that I was caught in an endless conga of giant dollar bills, all eager to be spent in Oxford Street or Bista Village, if only they could escape this infernal maze. As we passed the umpteenth sign telling us there's no excuse for abuse of Border Force officials, an Arizonan dame with the look of a big shopper asked me, is it always like this? Afraid so, ma'am, I replied, trying to emulate the courtesy of every American service worker I'd encountered on my own trip. Welcome to my shambolic country. Have a nice day. That was Martin van der Wehr. And finally, Philip Patrick. Hard to swallow. The unjustified hype about Japanese food. After 23 years in Japan, having tried everything from yatai street food to deep-fried globefish in a kaiseki or traditional restaurant, I've come to the conclusion that Japanese food is overrated. It's rarely less than perfectly presented, and it can be superb, but it can also be bland and homogenous. Part of the problem is that much of what delights the Japanese about their food is unrelated to its actual taste. If British food, in the bad old days at least, was simply fuel, Japanese food has always been to some extent art. A high-end Japanese meal is the equivalent of a Wagnerian Gesamtkunstwerk. The colours, the choice of bowls, utensils, tablecloth, room, and tinkling water from a nearby stream, if available, part of the all-encompassing sensory experience. A foodie friend undertook a tour of Japan's most famous regional ramen restaurants. He recalled one establishment where he sat down, began chatting to his companion, and was angrily hushed by the proprietor, who pointed to a sign on the wall. It was a no-talking restaurant. Japanese food is also medicine, with an inordinate amount of attention paid to the nutritional value and the fabled balance and harmony of ingredients, their provenance and seasonality. There are strict rules about eating until you're 80% full and wasting not a scrap. All of these considerations are admirable in their way, but it does occasionally make one yearn for the joy of eating for the sheer pleasure of it. The air of mysticism that surrounds a visit to a traditional Japanese restaurant is both seductive and intimidating. It lulls us into the belief that we're taking part in an ancient ritual while silencing any doubts at having to sit in an excruciating Caesar style for hours on end, eating tiny quantities of often rather tasteless dishes. Declare your favourite food to be French or Italian or Indian or Thai, and you'll make little impression and win no status points. But Japanese? Well, you're instantly proclaiming your sophistication. It makes for powerful marketing. Coin, a new restaurant in Grosvenor Square, boasts food inspired by the nature-spirited roots and duality of Mount Fuji. The cosmos of coin, whatever that means, promises an appreciation of balancing modernity with tradition. The duality is represented by the restaurant being split into midori, or green, or nature, and magma, fire, which isn't even a Japanese word. 
Only the Japanese or the Japanese inspired could get away with this. And the whole thing may even be a bit of a sham. As Michael Booth suggests in Sushi and Beyond, much of the Kaiseki rigmarole may have been a mid-20th century invention boosted by clever marketing, a bit like the plowman's lunch. I have some sympathy with Donald Trump, who, unlike most visiting dignitaries, passed on it all and instead went for a burger and chips with Shinzo Abe when he was in town. And it's not just at the gourmet end of things that the respect for tradition can seem excessive. At the New Year holiday, everyone is obliged to eat osechi ryori, preserved food, which even many Japanese will admit is bland. The custom originated as a way of giving housewives a break from cooking over the holiday season. The refrigerator rendered this rationale obsolete half a century ago, yet it persists. Japan, which this week reopened to international tourists, has been called a country with no coherent national religion, but some have speculated that its true religion is itself, the worship of its own customs, history and supposed uniqueness. Traditional Japanese cuisine fits this paradigm well, with the preparation, serving and eating of food akin to holy sacraments. None of this is to say that the hype is never justified. I have had some unforgettable dining experiences in Japan. Exceptional Japanese food is truly exceptional. But couldn't that be said of almost any cuisine? That was Philip Patrick. And that's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more pieces from the magazine. I'm Natasha Froze, and do join us again next time. <laughs>